that happens in the middle of a lake and it transforms them. It's a monumental event. And it says there in verse 33 that they worshipped him. They worshipped him. You know, that's something that we have to come to grips with as not only believers, but even as non-believers. What's it mean to worship Christ? It's a very essential teaching in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Jews said, no, you can only worship one God. They were monotheistic. You couldn't have a bunch of gods like all the, the Baal and all these other gods that the pagans worshipped. No, you worship one God. God alone is to be worshipped. That was their background. God established the law. He said, you shall have what? No other gods before me. Only the true God, Jehovah God, is to be worshipped. And that was very clear in their mind. However, in the New Testament, you see over and over and over again, as you read through the New Testament, you read the accounts in the Gospels, in the epistles, that Christ is worshipped. So you can only say one thing. You can only conclude one thing. If Christ is worshipped worshiped in the New Testament, and we know that in the Old Testament, it says you can't worship anybody but God, you have to conclude logically that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He is God. That's a simple conclusion. And they affirmed that statement when they said he is the Son of God. He's the same as God. In the New Testament, in chapter 2 of Matthew, you see that the wise men came worshiping Christ. You see in chapter 12 of John, the Gentiles worshiping Christ. In Matthew 8, we saw the leper worshiping Christ. The Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, we'll see how she worships Christ in a couple weeks. You have a maniac who's demon-possessed, comes out of the tombs. He ends up worshiping Christ, worshiping Christ in Mark 5. The blind man worshiped Christ in John 9. The disciples worshiped him at his resurrection and again in the mountain in Matthew 28. And they worshiped him at his ascension in Luke 24. You look through the epistles, you see in Hebrews chapter 1 that all the angels of God worship the Son of God. In Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, basically it says that God demands that every creature on earth over the earth, under the earth, wherever you're at, you have to bow the knee and worship Christ. And even in the book of Revelation, the final book in the Bible, in our canon, we find him being worshipped in glory in eternity. So it comes through the very beginning of the Word of God all the way through that Jesus Christ is to be worshipped. And you know what? Not one place, not one place do you see Jesus Christ saying, hey, don't worship me. Worship God. Because that would have been the right thing to do if he wasn't God. But he didn't do that. You remember when John, in Revelation, when he got all those visions, he fell down and it says that he worshipped an angel. And the angel's reaction to John's worship of him was, Get up, for I am only a creature like you are. You don't worship an angel, you worship God. He reaffirmed that worship is to be singled out, to be separated for God and God alone. We got people worshiping all sorts of things today. 
But nowhere in the Bible do you see Christ refusing any kind of worship. He always accepts it. They worshipped him in verse 33 because it was clear to them that they had a right to do so because he was the Son of God. He was who he had claimed to be. They were sure of it. Or they never would have done something like this. They had an ever-increasing kind of a knowledge and understanding of, king, of, of the, the king's identity, of Jesus Christ's identity as kingship. They don't understand everything at this point. They're not perfect in their understanding of Christ and all the plan that God has for them, obviously. There's a lot of questions in their mind. But this is a major step. And they're affirming Christ as the king, the Christ, the Messiah, the coming one, the prophet, the son of God. And it's a tremendous insight into God's, really, his, his care for us as believers. That God cares for us. That's something that's so element, elementary, even as I say it, it's kind of like, well, yeah, everybody knows that. But like I said earlier, things become so familiar, we become so identified with something and complacent that all of a sudden God's care for us. Well, yeah, God cares for us, so what? <laughs> Sometimes we get ourselves in difficult situations in life. We all do that into places where really in life we don't have any faith at all because the circumstances seem so overwhelming. We fear that God has abandoned us and we wonder if we're ever going to get out of this present circumstance that we find ourselves in. And what we're going to look at today, this text, hopefully will encourage you that if you walk in the way of obedience, you walk in the way of the gospel, you walk in obedience to Christ, that there's a way where God cares for his own. We saw a very important question that John the Baptist asked Jesus earlier on. He said, are you the coming one or should we look for somebody else? You remember that when we went over that? That was on everybody's lips. That was a question that was just constantly being asked. Is this the Messiah? Is this guy Jesus really the real deal? Or are we supposed to look somewhere else? Some thought maybe he was Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Everyone was in the, the process of evaluating who Jesus Christ was. And John basically articulated that for everybody. Jesus had been demonstrating that he was the coming one, that he was the prophet, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the King. He was bringing a kingdom. For two years he's been doing this. Great works, mighty works, speaking mighty words. They were in awe every time he spoke. Even in, in verse 21, where our last text ended, he brought about great, uh, great excitement. It says that those who had eaten after he fed them miraculously were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. And this was kind of the crescendo of Jesus Christ's ministry at this point. They saw him create food. You've got to remember, back in that society, I mean, food was an important thing. It wasn't like you just went down to Max's and pigged out for lunch, okay? I mean, it was very important to understand where your next meal was coming from. Did you have enough in the storehouse? Was everything prepared? 
wasn't as easy it is for us. They didn't have microwaves. They didn't just, you know, do all those kind of things. No In-N-Out burgers. Good to have an In-N-Out burger in Redwood City, isn't it? Man, I'll tell you. I don't know if it's good for our health, but it's, it tastes good. But I want to remind you, we got a guy in the church that has a deli, too, right across the street from In-N-Out Burger, Jerry. And he'd appreciate your patronage as well. <laughs> that just kind of stuck in there. <laughs> so, But this was the climax of his popularity. He'd been doing all these things, and we see here that his disciples are kind of along for the ride. And I'm sure at this point, even in John 6, it says that after he fed these people, that they wanted to kidnap Christ and make him their king. That's how excited they were. That's the level to which this excitement rose. They, they were just going to nab Jesus Christ after he fed. They figured out where the food was coming from. That was a very important thing. They said, hey, if this guy can feed us, and if he can do all these miracles, we want him to be our king. They were just going to kidnap him and make him their king. And you can imagine the disciples sitting back, kind of looking at this, going, man, these people are really on board with us, Jesus. All these people you fed, I mean, they're, I mean we could, you could just snap your fingers and say, let's go to Jerusalem and declare victory, and they would do it. That was in their minds. People were saying, we want him to be the, our king. And it's interesting, at this point, in verse 22, we're going to read that at this point in the ministry of Christ, rather than have a big rally and get all these people more excited and go and, and throw off the burdens of Herod and all his rules and, and all this stuff, rather than do that, he sends everybody away. <laughs> he just sends everybody away. Jesus wasn't interested in the shallow commitments of people who follow Christ just for a free meal. He's not interested in that. If we could get that through our heads today. That Jesus doesn't want your following him just because it's the thing to do. The religious thing to do. Oh, I'm a Christian. I follow Christ and it's just because I do it. He knew that probably most of this crowd was just looking for another free lunch. As a matter of fact, that's what happened the next morning when they woke up. They wanted breakfast. Where's Jesus? Where are the disciples? Come on, man, we're, we're hungry. We want this miracle thing to happen again. That was their reaction. And when he said to them, you know what? You seek me not because you care about me, but... Not even what I say, but you just want another free meal. I mean, that's basically what he said to them in John 6. If they could have free food, they want him to be king. He tells them some hard things in John 6. He says, you didn't come after me because you really cared. You just came after me because you wanted a free meal. Well, let me tell you, the only meal you're going to get is if you eat my flesh and drink my blood. How do you like that? Can you imagine what the people's reaction was? <laughs> what? They couldn't get it. In other words, what he was saying was, if you're going to come to me, you're going to come to me on my terms. You don't come to me on your own terms. 
Nobody has ever successfully come to Christ and gotten saved on their own terms. Jesus Christ and God set the terms for our salvation. We don't. You're not saved through a church. You're not saved through a prayer. You're not saved through reading your Bible or giving people food who are poor or giving money to the poor people. None of that is saving you. The Bible says all those works of righteousness that we can do, even if they're good ones, are like filthy rags before a holy God. In other words, they're not worth anything. That's a hard message to hear when you're trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and put one holy boot on at a time and and walk in holiness every day because of your religiosity. When all of a sudden you realize your religion doesn't mean squat to God. Then you step back and you go, wow. Well, if I don't get to God through religion, how do I get to God? Jesus answered that question. Clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but who? Through who? Through me. That's what Jesus Christ said. It's not through the Baptist church. It's not through the Methodist church. It's not through Grace Bible Church. It's not through the Catholic church. It's not through any other church. Very clear we understand that. And when he basically told them that, they just left. (laughs) The people left. Because they were that stony, thorny soil that we read about in the parables. But you know what? The disciples didn't didn't leave. And in John 6.68, he says, will you also go away? He asked them. He asked the disciples, are you going to leave with these other people? And Peter's response was, well, to whom shall we go? You alone, Lord, have the words of eternal life, and we believe that you surely are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Once again, he makes that declaration, and the others stand with him. The multitude left. They didn't want to hear that, what, drink your blood, eat your flesh? What are you talking about? We just want you to go and throw, overthrow everybody and give us free meals every day. Jesus, we want you to, to meet our felt needs. What can Jesus do for me today? Can he help my marriage? Can he help my relationship? Can he help my bank account? Can he help my job? If he can do those things, then I'm interested. But, you know, when you start saying, oh, you know, you've got to deny yourself and then follow Christ, you've got to die to yourself daily and then follow Christ. I don't want to hear that. I'm out of here. That was the reaction. Not the disciples. The disciples knew. They were sure. And the reason they were sure is about the very account we're going to read about this morning. He sent the crowd away, and he's dealing with these little group of disciples in a boat in the middle of a horrible storm. That's not the way we would have done it. If we were to build, you know, a kingdom, and we were going to set things up, man, we would have grabbed those... 25, 30,000 people, and we would have set up managers, and we would have had it all structured out, and boy, you know, we got to go get them now. You know, now we got this great army of people. Now we can go and reach other people, and that's what we would have done because we're impressed by those big numbers, see? That's not what God was interested in. That's not what Christ was interested in. He sent everybody away. The whole 
point of this passage that we're about to read in Matthew 14, verse 22, is to bring the disciples to the place where they really understand where Christ is and who he is. He wanted them to know. So let's look at this passage, beginning in verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. Remember, this is like a party atmosphere. Everybody's hungry. You know, they were hungry. He fed them miraculously. Everybody's like, whoa, this guy's incredible. He just wants to send everybody away. Verse 23. And when he had sent, sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, the boat in which the disciples were in, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, Whoa, it's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus But when he saw that the wind was boisterous and he was afraid, he began to sink and to cry out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand. He caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were with him were in the boat, came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Amazing account of the divinity of the Savior. First point we want to look at here, it's very clear. It speaks of his authority as the Savior sent from God. In verse 22, we see his divine authority. Jesus made his disciples that say, get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And then he sent the multitudes away. What's this saying is that, that basically Christ controls everything. He controls those who follow him, the disciples, and he controls the crowd that was just there for what they could get. He controlled those who were his own and those who were not. I mean, the mob was going to kidnap him, take him and make him their king. You know, and you're looking at 25, 30,000 people. That's not like a, you know, a group of 10 guys or something. I mean, you wouldn't have a chance. And yet we see his authority. He controlled that mob as well. And then in the story, he controls the waves and the sea. He controls everything. That's why he's God. He had the authority over everything in this situation. In John 5.19, he says that he had the authority to judge all men, and that authority was given to him by the Father. In Mark 1.27 People asked him, what what authority does he command even unclean spirits? And they obey him. I mean, he had authority over life and death, beloved. He had authority over time and eternity, heaven and hell, destiny. His authority was over the supernatural world. Even fallen angels. And even holy angels at his crucifixion. Remember, he said, you know what, I could call out. And what? Call a legion of angels to come and get me out of this mess but I'm not going to do it because it's not my Father's will. He's over the holy angels. 
In Matthew 7, we looked at when he taught the Sermon on the Mount, people were just blown away and they said, man, this guy teaches with authority. When the Jews in Mark 11 came, they challenged him. They said, by what authority do you do these things, Jesus? They wanted to know. They were playing a little cat and mouse game with him, trying to catch him, make him say something that would get him in trouble. I love the response in Mark 11. He says, well, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. Then he says, tell me this. Their Jewish leaders was John the Baptist of God or not? Throws the question right back in their face. That put him in a real jam. Because the text says, the Jewish leader says, well, if we say that he was from God, then he will ask why we didn't believe him. And if we say that he is not from God, surely this crowd of people gathered around will trample us because they all believe that John the Baptist was a prophet. So they wouldn't answer the question. Just like a lot of the politicians on the news programs. You know, you watch them and they ask a question. He didn't even answer the question. Just skirted right around it. So they said to Jesus, well, uh, we don't know. We can't tell. And Jesus said, well, you know what? Neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things. So there. That's how he dealt with them. Literally, that translates, you know what? It's none of your business where I get my authority. That's literally what he said to them. He had authority, and everybody that ever came in contact with Christ knew he had authority. And he transmitted that authority even to his disciples. And they continued to do the works of Christ. Well, what is authority? Authority, basically, if you were going to define it, means sovereign control. Sovereign control. He was in control of everything. He called the shots. He made the decisions about everything. He commanded the angels, the holy and the fallen angels. He commanded men, redeemed and unredeemed. He commanded them in time and eternity and heaven and hell. He determines their destiny. He controls nature. He creates whenever he will create. And he stops the storm when he wants to stop the storm. And he causes the wind and he causes everything to cease. He can walk on water. He has that kind of authority. We see it very clearly. Just in the text, it says Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. In other words, they weren't real crazy about this idea. They were probably all caught up in everything going, well, no, we can't leave these people. I mean, they're behind us now. This is what we've been working for for two years, and you're putting us in a boat and telling us to go to the other side? But he says, no, that's what you're going to do. I think part of that was to protect them. He knew that it was very easy for them to get cut up in all this political stuff that was going on with the people. They were going to take Jesus and make him their king. I'm sure the disciples would fall right into that. So he said, you know what? Out of love and protection for you, I'm just going to remove you from this situation. I'll deal with the mob after I get rid of you. He sent them on a boat. They probably didn't want to go because the Bible says that he made them go. They didn't want to leave that action. They didn't want to leave the Lord. And thirdly, probably they saw the storm coming. You want us to get in a boat and go out in this this storm? They didn't want to go, but he sent them anyway. 
See, that's how it happens when you have someone in authority. And I love the fact that they did go. They were obedient to their Lord. They yielded to his authority in their life. And you read a little later on in the the story there, and they're out in the middle of this sea, and they're rowing. I mean, I give them so much credit. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be in the middle of a sea, in the middle of a major storm, in a rowboat of all places, of all kind of boats to be in. Besides getting seasick, there's other things that could happen to you. You could drown. The boat could fill up with water. A lot of things. Bad things could happen to you in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a sea. But not at one point does somebody turn to the other and go, you know what, uh, let's not fight this. this. This wind seems a little too hard. <laughs> let's, I'm sure Jesus will understand. Let's just turn this thing around and we'll get back to the shore. We'll go back to where Jesus is. This doesn't make much sense. We're out here. We're going away from Jesus. We're in a problem. And, you know, not, no point in this story did they say that's what they wanted to do. They were obedient to their master. The Lord said, go to Capernaum. And that's what they did. And this wasn't an easy task. And even this wild-eyed mob couldn't resist his authority. It says after he sent the disciples away, he sent the multitudes away. And then he went away to pray privately, it says. He sent all these people away. I mean, where do you send 25,000, 30,000 people, first of all? Where were they going? I think they just kind of scattered out and went to sleep. On the hillside there, they just kind of grabbed their cloak or whatever they had, laid it down, and just crashed. Their stomachs were full. They were content. So you have people sleeping all over the hillsides there. It says, I say that because in John 6, it says the next morning they all woke up. That's when they got the idea, oh, where's Jesus? We want our breakfast, <laughs> you know? They knew a good thing when they found it. But it says in verse 23, he sent him, or verse 22, he sent him away. And then in verse 23, it says, he went up to the mountain himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was there alone. One commentator writes that this was probably a very hard temptation for Christ to deal with. If you stop and think about it, in his humanness, he's probably looking at this crowd too, thinking, man, if I got these guys behind me, we can go and we can take care of these religious people and this Herod and everybody else is out to get me. I got an army here. It was probably tempting to him. Kind of like back in Matthew 4 when Satan showed him the kingdoms of the world, remember? He said, hey, I'll give you all this if you just bow down to me, if you worship me. Christ wanted to be king. That's what he came for, to be king and share his kingdom with people. But he knew that wasn't in God's plan. So he needed to commune with his father, and that's what he did. He went and interceded for us as well. It says that it was evening, it would probably be the second evening. The first evening is from 3 to 6. The second evening from 6 to 9. From 3 to 6, he already fed all the people. That's when they ate their big dinner, miraculously. And so now it's between 6 and 9. 
and it's dark. He's alone on the mountain and he's praying. Just kind of shows us that, you know what, we need that as well. If Christ, the living God, had to get away and commune with his Father, how much more us as fallen human beings should we make prayer a priority somehow in our lives? And he prayed to his Father, but most likely he prayed for his own. In John 17, he interceded for his own, praying for the disciples. He probably prayed for them that they wouldn't be caught up in all this political stuff that's going on around him, that they would keep their eye on the goal. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, he said to Peter, Satan has desired to have you, Peter, but I have prayed for you <coughs> that your faith will not fail. I don't know about you, but the, to go to bed at night to think that, you know what, Jesus Christ is praying for me? Praying for my faith not to fail? I mean, isn't that amazing? <coughs> He's interceding for us continually. That should give us confidence. Great confidence in the Lord. Well, the second thing I see here in verse 24 is our Savior's omniscience, His divine knowledge. Christ's presence is secured by personal knowledge. Christ's presence is secured by personal knowledge. He leaves, you leave the mountain and you go back to the sea in the story in verse 24. He's up on the mountain all by himself, but it says, But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, and the wind was contrary. John's Gospel says it was 25 or 30 stadia, or furlongs, out into the middle of the sea. Stadia is about an eighth of a mile, so probably three or four five miles out there, probably right in the middle of the sea. Trip from where they were across to Capernaum was probably, if you look at a map, it's about four, four and a half miles, something like that. Not that big of a deal. These guys were fishermen. They probably did this all the time. But instead of going where they were supposed to go, they ended up four or so miles out in the middle. Not going to the other shore, but in the middle of the sea. They were being tossed around by the waves, and it says the wind was contrary. I mean, it just speaks to their, their, their obedience. They're doing the best to be obedient to what God said. God said through the Savior, He said, you know what, get in the boat and go over there. To Bethsaida. And that's where they were headed. They were trying to. The storm kicked up, but they didn't give up. Mark adds that they were distressed in their rowing. I don't know if you ever rowed a boat, but after a while, man, it, you know, it gets a little tiring. You know, your lats start to burn. It's, just, it's a little tough. Well, can you imagine in the middle of a storm thinking, you know, we should have been there a couple hours ago. Where are we at? I don't know, but Jesus said just keep, <laughs> just keep rowing. John 6.18 says that it was a fierce wind. 
Verse 24, it says that they were tossed. In Matthew 8, that same word in the original language means tormented. I mean, these guys were having a hard time. They were having a difficult time. It was a bad night for the disciples in this little boat. I mean, the last time they got in a storm like this, you remember what happened? Who was in the boat with them? Jesus. What'd they do? In the back of the boat, hey, Jesus got some problems here. You know, water's coming in. We don't have to, oh, no problem. Everything's calm. But guess who's not in the boat this time? Jesus. He's not there. And not only that, there's no way for him to get there because he, they took the last boat. One of the Gospels points that out. Because when the crowd woke up the next morning, they kind of looked around and wanted to know where everybody went. And they, oh, they took the last boat. They had to go and rummage up some other boats, different area, and bring them down and hop in and, and do what they had to do. Go find the Savior. They didn't know what to do. They're being tormented in the middle of the sea. Everything around them just isn't making sense. They're probably at a certain point, questioning even what they're doing. And yet Christ is continuing to pray for them. He's up there on the mountain praying, and they're down there being thrown around and torn about by the, the winds and the storm. He's quietly, calmly, before the Father in His presence on their behalf. You know, they didn't know it, but they were secure. This didn't catch Jesus off guard. Just like things in our life don't catch us off guard. I mean, they're out there four or five, six hours, something like that, trying to go four miles with no success, and they're still trying. But you know what? He knows. He sees their efforts. He sees the predicament they're in. In verse 25, it says now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. wasn't any big deal. He didn't get the crowd, wake the crowd. Hey, look, you, you thought feeding the 5,000, you thought you guys feeding you, all you, you people was a big deal? Watch this. I'm going to walk on this crazy sea that's just out of control right now in the middle of the storm. I'm going to walk right out to where my disciples. Nobody saw this. He just... Just matter-of-factly, you know what? It's no big deal. I'm God. I have authority. I have power over everything. For him, it was no big deal at all. He who made the sea could definitely walk on it if he chose. So it says that he came to them walking on the sea. He knew exactly where to walk. He didn't get to the shore and go, man, where are these guys now? I I can't. Look at these waves. They're probably up and down. I don't know where they're at. No. Jesus walked right out from the shoreline, right across this tumultuous storm that was going on. You can imagine it probably just flattened out as he walked. He probably didn't even get wet. He knew exactly where to walk because he knew exactly where they were at. Even though they had no clue. It didn't matter that he couldn't physically see them. Because of the storm, he had divine knowledge. He knows everything. Darkness is no barrier for our Lord. 
Psalm 139, it says, The darkness hides me. The darkness will be as light to you. Psalm 139 goes on. It, it, it continues. You know, where, where am I going to go to get away from God? Where could I possibly go? Darkness is no barrier to God. Distance is no barrier to God. Because He is the Son of God. He has divine knowledge. He knows where you are. He knows your distress. He knows your circumstance. And He knows how to get to you. This fourth watch of the night is basically between three and six. You have four watches. still have them in the military. First watch is six to nine. Second one's nine to twelve. Third watch is twelve to three. Fourth watch is three to six. Generally. So they've been out there all night. Something should have taken them an hour or so to get there. They're out there all night in this horrible storm. Can you imagine what's going through their minds? Great anxiety, great fear. Seems like he waits a long time to get to them, to go to them, doesn't it? I mean, if they're out there that long, struggling... I mean, why would he do that? Why would God allow that? Why would, why would he allow his disciples whom he loves to be out there tormented and tortured in these waves and trying to do what he... They're being obedient, but they're just not having any success. And they're filled with fear. They're filled with anxiety. He's fine. He's not upset about this. The point is this. Do you ever realize if you never have a storm... You'll never know that he can handle this storm. If you never are put into the midst of a storm where everything is just upside down, nothing makes sense, everything is just going haywire, until you're there and God saves you from that, you're never going to realize that, you know what? God can save me from anything. You never really understand the power of God until you are strung out to your extreme Rope. I mean, you were on the last rope. Why do you think the Lord didn't go to Martha and Mary until Lazarus was so dead that he actually stunk? They said the body was rotting. I mean, Jesus could have just turned around on top of the mountain while he was praying and said, oh, you know, these poor guys just hushed the storm. He could have just... Just stop the storm. And they could have made it to their destination, fine. But it didn't happen that way. He wanted them to be in the midst of that perfect storm because he wanted them to understand who he was. And that he knows everything. That he cares for us. He knows, Psalm 139 says, he knows when you sit down, when you rise up. He knows everything about who you are and what you do. What your needs are. He's known you from your womb. From the womb. If you ascend to heaven, he's there. If you make your bed and shield, he's there. If you take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there, his hand will lead you and his right hand will hold you up. It doesn't matter where you are. God is there to sustain us. Think of the story in Genesis 22 when you have Abraham taking Isaac up to the altar to sacrifice him because that's what God told him to do. Once again, just obedient. 
Didn't make any sense. His only born son, and he's going to take him up there and, and slaughter him? And he's got his son bound and on the altar, and he's ready with the knife to take him and slay his son. And it says he raised the knife up, and all of a sudden the angel of the Lord said, oh, Hold on! <laughs> One moment, please, Abraham. One more thing I want you to hear. I mean, can you imagine if God showed up a couple minutes late? He never does. In our logic, in our mind, sometimes we think He does. But He never does. He knows exactly what you're going through, when you're going through it. And He knows exactly the moment that you're at your wit's end and that He's going to divinely intervene for you on your behalf. And you're going to sit back and you're going to go, Wow! What in the world just happened here? I can't believe that God did this. That's how he teaches us. That's how he brings us along in our faith. You notice he not only came in the middle of this storm, but he came on the storm. (laughs) He literally walked right across the storm and used it as a footpath. Sometimes we look around us and our, our lives are so screwed up sometimes and messed up. we got things all backwards and, and we just think there's no way I'm going to get out of this. You turn to God. You turn to Christ. It says that he came towards them. Why do you think he did that? I'll tell you why. Because they had needs. They had needs. They were at the end of the rope. They were at their extreme. They had no more options. He couldn't see them from the mountain or in the dark, stormy night, but he knew exactly where they were. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. You can't get away from the eyes of the Lord. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, seeing then that we have such a high priest. Speaking of Christ, we have a high priest who knows everything about us, every little detail. He knows the number of the hairs on our head. And for some of you that are blessed with hair, that number changes every day. So it's a continual knowledge. He just knows that. The Bible says that he knows if a a sparrow falls or the word is hops in the Greek on the branch. He knows it immediately. In Matthew 6.32 it says, Your Father knows that you have need of all things. In Matthew 6.6 it says, The Father who sees in secret. God knows everything about us. So don't wait to run to him. Third thing I see here is the Savior's divine protection. Divine protection. And through that protection, he has the potential to conquer any fear. Because that's what Christ's presence does. It says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were, what, troubled. And they said, it's a ghost. Phantasm is the word. And it says, they cried out in fear. Some liberals say, well, he wasn't really walking, and not all of them really saw him. Well, Mark says each one of them saw him. This wasn't like a USO, UFO that somebody saw out in the field somewhere. No, they all saw him. There was no deception here. 
But they were filled with terror. They're in a horrible situation. And then they see this ghost, this spirit being, walking to them. They were panicked. They were disillusioned. They were disappointed. They didn't, why did the Lord put us in this predicament? The word in verse 26 says that they were troubled. It means upheaval. It means to shake up. It means to agitate, trouble, to the point of panic. Mark points out that it was apparently that it says that he would have appeared to have passed by the boat. That's what Mark's account. So here you have Jesus, you have the disciples in this horrible situation, and then Jesus, it's almost like he's going to walk right by the boat. He didn't come right up to the boat. But when they saw this being out there, it wasn't until they cried for help that he responded to them. The Lord will always be there, but he wants to elicit from the heart of the one in need, a cry for help. And when they screamed out, it's a ghost. It says in verse 27 that immediately Jesus spoke to them. Be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. They would have known his voice right away. As the Bible says, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. He says, stop fearing. That's what it says. Stop fearing. I'm here. Take heart. Just stop it. Be of good cheer. Take, take courage is what that means. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I am the Son of God and I am here as your protector. I mean, isn't that wonderful to know that God, through Jesus Christ, is our protector? When the storm seems so extreme that we don't even know where we're at and we don't know which ends up, that he's there to protect us. He never comes too late. He just kind of matter-of-factly says to him, hey, cheer up, I'm here. Stop fretting. He doesn't give him some big long speech. He's not there to teach them how to walk on water. This is an important point. Some people look at this and then they say, yeah, if you have faith, you can walk on water. And they they go down that road. That's not the point of the story. Jesus isn't allowing them to go through all this just so he can show them how to walk on water. And the reason I know that is because after this account, none of them ever walked on water again. Matter of fact, no one in the Bible ever walked on water after this. love to go to some of the miracle workers today and say, hey, try this one, pal. Let's go down here to one of the lagoons. You say you got the gift of miracles and all this stuff. <laughs> go ahead. Let, let me see it. Just a couple steps. You don't see him doing this kind of stuff, do you? This is not to teach people how to walk on water. This is to teach people who can't 
walk on water that God can. That's the purpose of this. God allows us into trials sometimes, not just to teach us how to deal with the stuff we're dealing with, but to teach us that, you know what, I'm there with you, I'm your protector, and I will teach you that I can deal with this, if you'll let me. He responds to our needs. You see in in verses 28 and 31, the Savior's divine love. He says, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, it should read, it is you, command me to come to the water. He wasn't questioning. He knew who it was because it says that he heard their voice. I mean, he knew exactly who it was. That if really shouldn't be there. It says, since it is you. That Greek word can be translated if or since, and it gets us in trouble a lot of times because they translate it if when maybe it should be translated since. Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Some people get all over Peter at this point in time. Oh, what a, you know, who does he think he is? I mean, this is ridiculous. Why would he, why would he do something like this? Because he knows the Lord's authority, he knows his knowledge, he knows his protection, but he also knows that he's a loving God. And so Christ says, well, come on. Come on out. Let me ask you, would you get out of that boat? Remember, the storm's still going on, beloved. Nothing's changed. There's still... A lot of panic in their hearts. But he wanted them to understand that he would never ask them to do something that would put them in harm's way. Christ's presence always stirs the hope of being saved. The hope of being saved. Some people say, well, why did Peter even do this? Was he trying to show off or whatever? No. You know why? He wanted to be where Jesus was. You look throughout the Bible, Peter was always where, he always wanted to be where Jesus was. I mean, he was a little, you know, extreme in his emotions sometimes. But he always wanted to try to do the right thing. He wanted to be with Jesus so much he was willing to climb out of a boat and that's what you had to do. It wasn't like some little boat. I mean, it was a you know, half-decent-sized boat to fit all those guys in that climbed out of it in the middle of a storm. And he says that he walked, came out of the boat, and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He had a confident faith that God, you know what, Christ, I know you won't allow something to happen to me. People criticize him for all kinds of things. He's the one that tried to divert Christ from the cross. The Lord had to say, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? He's the one that fell asleep in the prayer meeting. Well, who... Among us have, haven't at some time fallen asleep in a prayer meeting. If you go, 
We've all done that. We've all stood as a blockade to the express purpose of God. And you say, well, he, he was the one that stood outside the trial of Jesus and he denied Jesus three times. Well, who among us can say that we haven't denied Christ in our lives at one point or another, usually by our own silence? He loved Christ so much he wanted to be in his presence. And he knew that the love of God would keep him safe. He was consumed with being with Christ constantly, always. Do we share that same affection? Do we desire to be with Christ the way Peter did? It says in verse 30, But when he saw the wind was boisterous and was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. See, this is what I'm talking about at the end of your rope. You can't get on Peter. How, how in the world can you criticize Peter? He's the only one that got out of the boat. He's the only one that walked on the water. I love Christ's response to him. In verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith. Notice he said, oh, Where's your faith? You don't have any faith, you big wimp. He didn't criticize Peter. He used this as an opportunity to encourage him. Oh, you of little faith. That's not an insult. Jesus himself said, If you have faith of a what? Mustard seed. Last time I checked, the mustard seed is pretty small. He wasn't criticizing Peter at all. You may be in the midst of a storm and you don't, you, you don't know how to get out. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't even know if God's around. All you have to do, beloved, is you do what, what, what Peter's doing here. Lord, save me. Save me. I don't know what else to do. And he will do just that. When you come to the end of your rope, when you're willing to be saved. Because Christ's presence stirs confession and worship. We see here, lastly, a demonstration of his divine power. It says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Verse 32, and when they got to the boat, got into the boat. Well, how did they get into the boat? If Peter walked out of the boat and walked to Jesus, and then he began to sink, and Jesus stretched out his hand and grabbed him, guess how they got back to the boat? They walked. At this point, everything has still gone crazy. Nothing's making sense. The waves are. And it's not until it says when they got to the boat, what happened? The wind ceased. The wind ceased. It was at that point when they, Peter and the disciples saw what just happened. 
It says in verse 33, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, You know what? We've never, ever seen anything like this. You must be. Truly, you are the Son of God. Only someone who has divine power to save somebody. That's how we're saved. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our our praying. We're not saved by anything we do. We're saved by God's sovereign work in our life. I didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'll just become a Christian now. That sounds like a good deal. All your sins forgiven, eternity in heaven with God. Yeah, I think I'll just make that decision. No. God had to open my eyes. I was very religious before I was a Christian. Went to church every week. Was an altar boy. Did the whole nine yards, everything. But there was a major disconnect between what I saw on Sunday and the rest of the week. And when God made that connection to me, it's not about going to church, Steve. It's not about doing all these things and trying to earn your way to heaven. That's what religion is. I'm not interested in a religion. I'm interested in a relationship. And you know what? I'm going to save you. When that happened, all of a sudden I realized, whoa, this is incredible. What a powerful God. And I began to worship and serve my Lord and Savior, not because I wanted to, not because I had to. It just just seemed to come out of my heart and out of my life. not a have-to kind of a thing as a Christian. It's something that he does within you. I pray this morning that this story, this account spoke to your heart. I pray that you would come to understand the Savior's divine power that he's able to save, his divine love. It says that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross as these songs we sang earlier. And he died for you personally. He wants you to cry out to him, Lord, save me. Save me from my sin. We've all sinned in a myriad of ways. God wants us to see that love, experience that love. Because he wants to protect you. He knows exactly what you're going through. And he has the authority to deal with it. I pray that your hearts will be drawn to him this morning. Father, we ask that you would do your work the work that only you can in the hearts of people gathered here this morning. Lord, I don't know what burdens people brought into this building today, but I know that you do. You know exactly where each one of us is at in our own lives. And Father, there's going to come a day when we're going to be free from this body of sin, we're going to be free from this sinful world, and we're going to be in your presence to worship you in holiness forever and ever and ever. And Lord, that's made available for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. But that's not an automatic deal. You don't just get there by being nice or being religious or being a good person. Because the Bible says that we all have fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned and fallen short. And we need... A plan, and you put that plan into place when Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived a life of purity and holiness, and he died on a cruel cross. He gave up his life for us. 
And your word tells us that if we put our faith, our trust in that work on the cross, in his sacrifice for us, that it will take care of our sins, that it will pay for our sins. Father, we ask that you would move, you would work in the hearts of people here this morning, that you would show them their need of a Savior, their need to come to you through Christ. Pray that you would do that work. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to be closed with a song.